Welcome, I'm Colleen Holcomb, President of Eagle Forum, and I'm so honored to be joined today by Congressman Ken Buck. Welcome, Congressman Buck, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me. Good, oh, we're so thankful to have you, and I'm really thankful. I was able to review a sneak peek of your book entitled, the Cap or entitled Capital of Freedom, and it's a brilliant and I thought really beautiful look at our remarkable nation, our founding fathers, and how our government was really designed to protect our freedoms told through the context of the historical um, statues and, uh, and artifacts in the Capitol. And while this book just couldn't be more timely, I mean, you couldn't possibly have known what would be going on in the world when this book came out. Isn't that true? It is true. I wrote this actually and, and uh, submitted it to the publisher uh, on Thanksgiving. If you can imagine last November and, and events have really uh, both the pandemic as well as uh, the cancel culture has, has really arisen since then. And it's fascinating to uh, to see how the, the book predicted some of the events that, that we're uh, going through right now. It's amazing. It really does. I've just been reading the book and in talking to colleagues, I'm amazed how many times I've referenced the book just in this past week that I've had it. So it, it deals with so much we're facing now, as you mentioned, the cancel culture, um, also the rioting, the race issues that we're dealing with now. And it's just amazing. You seem to come to the conclusion that the solution lies in our history, not in destroying our history. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And, that, and that's a great, uh, a great summary, really, for the book. I, I, I give tours regularly of the United States Capitol to constituents and to other groups that visit uh, Washington, D.C. And, and I have studied the Capitol with historians and uh, have gone online and learned a lot. And our history uh, really is demonstrated in so many different features in the Capitol. And yet the, the progressives, the leftists, the radicals, the anarchists are trying to destroy the meaning of so many of those features. And it's sad to me to see that. And I think sad for many Americans who understand that uh, our, the greatness of this country is based on the foundations that we see all around us in the Capitol. That's so true. Reading this book, I just got so energized about our country. And really, again, I mean, so many of the solutions really lie in some of the concepts. Now, I'm going to get into some of the specifics, but before we get into some of the substance, I loved in the introduction to your book, you mentioned your three grandchildren's first three words. Can you tell us what those were? Yeah. Well, I, I shouldn't actually say that. <laughs> and I probably shouldn't have put it in the, in the book, but big government sucks. And, and it's just a... You know, it is a bumper sticker that I've seen. It's a button that I've seen. And it really summarizes the problems that we have with the federal government. Our government was not designed to be a top-down government. It was designed to be a bottom-up government. It was designed to start with the people and then school boards and town boards and, and other uh, groups and then the states and then the federal government. And the federal government has very uh, specific and limited power. And, and that has been abandoned, and it's been abandoned to our detriment. It is. Well, I, hey, truth is truth, you know. If, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think you're a great uh, success having you know, raised your grandchildren right clearly. But um, so that's enough. I'd say your work is done, but we're glad it's not. We're glad you continued. And I'm just going to ask you about some of the specifics in the book. Again, very timely, extremely prescient. The, um, the liberal majority in Congress passed a D.C. statehood bill. And you address that very issue and the founding fathers' wisdom in keeping Washington, D.C. a very distinct uh, entity, not, not lying within any state and not being a state in and of itself. Can you tell us a little bit about why that's so important? 
Sure. Well, in, in the book, I talk about why we have a District of Columbia, and it really uh, started for a few reasons, but uh, the, the primary one was uh, the uh, capital and, and the, uh, the seat of the federal government was in Philadelphia. And there were a group of Revolutionary War veterans who didn't feel that they were getting their compensation, uh, their, their veterans' benefits at the time. And so they uh, closed down Congress. They, they just shut down the ability of Congress to meet. And because of the politics, uh, the, the state of Pennsylvania did nothing to help in that situation. And so George Washington and James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams uh, got together for dinner and they talked about, we need a separate, uh, a separate piece of land that is the federal government's land, not the state's land. And this was really something that was contrary to the Declaration of Independence and, and what the Constitution would talk about later, uh, because there, it really was an, a recognition at the time that states had given up their power to create the federal government. It wasn't the federal government that created uh, subservient political jurisdictions. And so the, uh, the four of them met and they decided we're going to have a, a District of Columbia, we're going to have a federal district. And then they started talking about where should it be located. And, and James Madison wanted it located in the north near the uh, uh, the monetary, uh, uh, the banks, and, and uh, the, those that control the money. Um, and, and Thomas Jefferson and, and George Washington wanted it located in the South, where it would be more um, uh, centrally located and uh, wouldn't, uh, the, the slave issue was an issue at the time. And so they chose this uh, piece of Maryland and Virginia as uh, the District of Columbia. And uh, it was uh, the, the, out, the, um, uh, the map for the district, the plan for the district uh, was created by Pierre L'Enfant and, and uh, the, the district then uh, grew um, really into what it is today. Um, but it was always recognized that Congress, the legislative branch, the people's house would sit on the hill and all the rest of the federal district would look up to Article One, and again, it was significant that that Congress was Article One. It was the most important branch because it was the first branch mentioned in the Constitution, and all of those things talk about legislative supremacy. And we've lost legislative supremacy in this country. We now have executive branch supremacy, and we have bureaucrats making decisions that members of Congress, uh, United States senators, should be making. And uh, unfortunately, we have veered away. But but absolutely, when we talk about the D.C. state bill that was passed recently in, in the U.S. House, it is absolutely contrary to what our founders envisioned and would be very, very dangerous to the idea of uh, having an independent federal government. Yeah, and you make a, a great point and really illustrate throughout the book that Congress really was supposed to be the dominant branch because it is the branch that represents the people, and that's really gotten twisted largely because of the media and uh, because of Supreme Court overreach, but uh, yeah, what, what would you say about that? Well, it, it, absolutely right. We have we we are supposed to have, uh, and now you, again, you hear from the the liberals, the the, the radicals that 
uh, we have three co-equal branches. Uh, we never intended, uh, the founders never intended to have three co-equal branches. The, the judiciary was never a co-equal branch. The judiciary was designed to be a branch that would uh, settle differences between the other two branches uh, that would act as a referee, but it was never designed as a super legislature. It was never designed as a, as a super executive branch, and it has become that and has become that. And I write about it in the book. One of the reasons why uh, Supreme Court nominations are so controversial is because the left believes that they can use the Supreme Court to override constitutional provisions. And it's, and it's unfortunate, but the, uh, the legislative branch uh, was intended to be the branch that was closest to the people. If you look at the design of Washington, D.C., and I take my guests out to the uh, speaker's balcony, and you can look out at the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial on the mall, and the mall was a public space that was designed to allow the American public to uh, redress grievances with the, uh, the, the people's house and uh, allow people to gather and so that they could protest against their government, um, hopefully sometimes compliment those in government service. But uh, certainly the, the design of Washington, D.C. Was, was meant to uh, recognize the, the, the prominence of the legislative branch. Well, and I love the story that you share about L'Enfant and how George Washington actually fired him over what was essentially an eminent domain issue. Isn't that right? It, it, absolutely. And, and it's an interesting story because he was uh, very important in the revolutionary, L'Enfant was very important in uh, the revolutionary uh, effort to uh, uh, rid ourselves of the British monarchy control. And so uh, George Washington rewarded him by uh, giving him this position of architect of the Capitol. And the, uh, what, he, what he did was there was a, a house that was uh, in uh, the path of a road that uh, he wanted, that L'Enfant wanted to build. And so he asked the owner, uh, you know, can we buy this house? And the owner said, no, I'm, uh, this is uh, my house and I don't want to sell this house. And so L'Enfant had troops go and tear down the house and, and, and uh, uh, destroy this man's private property. And, and when the owner, actually his brother was a friend of, of uh, George Washington, there's a connection, interesting connection that I talk about in the book to Georgetown University and, and other uh, things that are happened in Washington, D.C. But the uh, owner of the house uh, let George Washington know what happened. And, and George Washington convened a meeting with James Madison and John Adams and, and Thomas Jefferson again. And Thomas Jefferson drafted the letter uh, to the owner of the house, Mr. Carroll, apologizing for its destruction and also a letter to L'Enfant explaining why he would, was going to be fired. Um, but, but somebody from France uh, would not understand the significance of private property that's embedded in our Declaration of Independence, embedded in our United States Constitution, and embedded in the uh, the, the the ideals that the founders held and wanted us to continue in this country. Isn't that amazing? So even as the country was being founded, you were seeing these principles in practice, and it's clear the founding fathers were committed to making sure that private property was protected. It's really right. remarkable. And, and also, Colleen, one of the amazing things about private property was it just isn't a house. It's, it's not your car. It's, it's not the furniture. It's, it's actually your thoughts. 
and it's your beliefs, it's your religious beliefs, it's your political beliefs. We have ownership in those things and was always intended to have ownership. And that's why it's so important that we recognize that our rights are given to us by God. They're not given to us by the government because then they can be taken away by government. They can be infringed on by government. But how dare government try to take something away that God has given us? And I, the founders believe that with all of their core. They could have been big government uh, founders like John Adams, or they could have been small government founders like Thomas Jefferson. Didn't matter. They believed that property was, was so vital in how we developed as a country, and they saw property in a very, very broad way. Yeah, that's it's just fascinating. And again, a really beautiful illustration. I also loved the, um, the story that you told about, which you know we all should know this from our American history, but about George Washington surrendering his military commission or resigning his military commission in order to be a civil leader. And the fact that that was something he was beloved. He was really giving up a lot of glory. He probably could have had a lot more power himself, but he was so committed to those ideals of limited government and being submissive to the people that he did resign his commission. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. I think it's fascinating, not just that, that George Washington did that, but that the, re, the reaction in Europe to what George Washington did. All these people in Europe um, had sought power. Napoleon and, and other leaders in Europe, um, they continued to try to build empires in Europe, and they tried to continue to uh, sort of build their own status. And here was a man who was humble enough to say, my country is more important than me. What I do in this instance, history will take note of. And so he resigned his commission as the most powerful and popular man in America. He resigned his commission um, and, uh, and he did it to Congress. He didn't do it to the president. He did it to Congress. He, he said, this is so important that I'm going to go before the Continental Congress and I'm going to resign my commission. And there's a large painting in Congress uh, in Statutory Hall showing George Washington resigning his commission. And it's all about the fact that we are a civilian government and the civilian government receives its power from the people. It does not uh, receive its power from other government officials or take power away from the people, but it actually receives power from the people. And reading that, I was just thinking, we're hearing all these cries to destroy our history, to tear down statues of George Washington. And I think people who, who think that sounds like a good idea have been told that our founding fathers and people like George Washington were elitists or you know, somehow that they, were, um, that they weren't humble. But really, this is what we need to know, that our country was really founded on great humility. And, and you know, Colleen, uh, um, the founders of our country weren't perfect. Right, exactly. and, and they can't pass a purity test today. And, and nobody can pass a purity test today. It's one of the reasons why we believe in Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons why we believe that even though we are flawed human beings, that there is grace and, and that there is a path to, to eternal life. And it's so important, I think, that we recognize and, and study history to see the progress that we've made. We had people that weren't pure. We had people that made mistakes. We had people that owned slaves. And, and even the slave owners oftentimes recognized what a terrible institution that was and what a terrible stain on American history that is. But to, sh to, to ignore the progress that we've made and to ignore the great accomplishments of those people is a mistake. Absolutely. And you tell an incredible story about a freed slave who had a very honored position in the building of the Capitol. Can you share a little bit about that? I love that. And you are so, you really make that point. That's right. Our founding fathers were not perfect and our nation wasn't perfect, 
but our history really is a history of turning away from slavery and looking forward. And, and, and it's a history that we should celebrate and, and, and really that the, that the rest of the world celebrates. At the time when we have radicals tearing down our history, the rest of the world is looking at us puzzled, thinking, wait a second, this is a country that, that really has uh, benefited from uh, recognizing the faults of its history and moving forward. But it's a great story. It's, and it's one of many great stories, I think, in the book. But uh, Philip Reed was a slave. He was purchased in uh, South Carolina and he was brought to Washington, D.C. And, and he worked uh, in a, a staff statue making facility in a foundry and uh, that, that foundry was responsible for and received the, the contract for the Statue of Freedom which is on the, uh, the, the dome of the United States Capitol and uh, uh, Philip Reed, a very bright, not educated, but a very bright man was able to figure out how to take the, the plaster mold from Italy that was brought to the United States, um, make this beautiful Statue of Freedom and uh, put it on top of the dome. And uh, in 1863, uh, he was given his freedom uh, from slavery for, uh, during the, uh, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation of the District of Columbia, not the 1864 more famous Emancipation Proclamation, but the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation for the District of Columbia. So he was a free man at the time, still working for the same uh, company, the same business, and was responsible for putting that statute of freedom. And I, I think to myself, what a great, uh, how he must have just overflowed with pride knowing that at one point in time he was a slave and then he uh, erected a statue that all Americans recognized, that all Americans celebrate. And uh, again, it was just a huge step uh, in, in progress in terms of where America was and, and we're in a path that it started down. You're so right. And what a beautiful illustration. All of that potential was, potential was locked in him and getting rid of slavery was able to unleash that potential. And you're right, it is such a beautiful symbol. Um, you also talk about the rule of law and how our founding fathers viewed the rule of law and saw that it was so important to be governed by laws instead of by a monarch. Now we're seeing, and you, but you discussed the opposite. They considered if we don't have laws, we'll be ruled by mobs essentially. And now that's what we're facing in some cities and some areas. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of the rule of law? Sure, and, and, and thank you for bringing it up because as, as, a, as a prosecutor, it's one of my passions. Um, I, I actually feel like I am a, a prosecutor um, that is just posing as a member of Congress right now. But I, I just feel so strongly about the rule of law because of my background. And, and when we look at American history, again, we see uh, people who have acted uh, in a flawed way. We, you know, I talk about the fact that uh, FDR used the IRS to, uh, to punish his political opponents. And uh, President Lyndon Baines Johnson used uh, the CIA to spy on Barry Goldwater. And uh, President Kennedy had uh, one of his uh, mistresses, uh, who was an East German spy, uh, summarily deported uh, because uh, of uh, her activity and how embarrassing it would be. And, and President Obama used the IRS to deny conservative Tea Party groups uh, the ability to form a, a nonprofit organization. So we have this long history of what happens when government grows too large and, and can be used by the left to, to punish uh, political opponents. And it's one of the reasons why I think the rule of law is so important that even the FBI uh, and how the 
the uh, Obama administration used the FBI to, to spy on the Trump campaign, to prosecute individuals in the Trump campaign is fundamentally wrong. And we need to, we need to abide by the rule of law and we need to understand that we are limited by the laws and, and how we uh, deal with uh, people and, and how we uh, really form our government. Absolutely. Yeah, it is so important. I'm so thankful we have some good prosecutors on Capitol Hill because we need the rule of law. I think, you know, we always say more than any other time in history, but certainly more than any other time I've ever lived in. So we appreciate you. Um, you discuss in the book the importance of freedom of press, uh, and you talk about how that's um, you know, what we're dealing with now. We're seeing so much censorship on social media, so much political correctness in our media. Um, but one of the points that you make in the book is how important it is to protect even speech that's considered to be abhorrent. And that's what we're not seeing now. We're seeing anything that might be considered to be offensive is being censored. Why is it so important to protect speech even that we don't agree with? Yeah, I think that's how we grow as a country. And, and it's so, uh, if, if we look at our country, uh, there have been presidents, uh, President Adams, uh, uh, the second president of the United States, John Adams, and, and uh, also President Woodrow Wilson, who uh, uh, enacted laws or had their allies in Congress enact laws and then implemented those laws, uh, the Sedition Act that would punish people uh, in the United States who, who disagreed with the government and who spoke ill of the government. That's what we're about. You know, the protests that are going on now, there's nothing wrong with the protests. There's something wrong with vandalizing statues. There's something wrong with looting stores, but there's nothing wrong with protesting. We want to, we want people to feel comfortable protesting. We want to be uncomfortable with issues that other people raise so that they challenge the way we think and they, and they make us better as a country. And, and that's really what uh, our freedoms are based on. No other country in the world. Um, would, would put up with this. In fact, I, I tell a joke in, in one of the chapters about uh, that President Reagan told. And, and he said, you know, uh, there was a, an American talking to a, a Russian and the American said, you know, what, what's great about America is I can stand up and, and say that uh, President Reagan um, is, is, you know, a, a lousy president. And, um, and the, the Russians said, well, wait a second, that's no different. In Russia, I can stand up and say that President Reagan is a lousy president also. And, and the point is that there's only some things you can say in Russia. There's only some things you can say in China. There's only some things you can say in many African or Asian countries. But in America, you can speak your mind. And as long as you don't incite violence, as long as you don't uh, create the kind of conditions that would hurt other people, um, if you're just challenging them intellectually, we welcome that in, in America. We may disagree. We may turn off the TV. We may walk away from a protest. That's okay. But it's not okay to silence someone from speaking their mind. And it's also not okay to, uh, to make sure that we don't feel the ability to speak our own mind because it's part of the obligation we have as Americans. That's right, and we're losing so much by just silencing those voices or bullying people into political correctness rather than inviting discussion just because we don't want to be offended. Um, well, I know, your time, I know you have a lot of demands on your time. We really appreciate your time, but any closing uh, points that you'd like to make about the book? Can you tell our listeners how they can get their copy of the book? 
Sure, absolutely. It is on Amazon uh, right now. Um, uh, I'm not sure if many of the bookstores are open at this point, so I would recommend some of those, but I think uh, the local bookstores will have uh, copies of the book and, and can certainly order copies of the book, but Amazon is the easiest play, place to go uh, to get the book right now. And I would just uh, welcome people uh, to read the book and then come visit Washington, D.C. Come see for yourself the the uh, the symbolism the, the see where the stories occurred um, and I hope you stop by my office and I would love to give tours to people um, I do it just about every night that I'm in Washington D.C. and it's a real pleasure to meet Americans and hear their stories as well as share the story of the United States Capitol. Oh, well, thank you so much. You made me really want to come take some of your one of your tours. You have some very funny stories and some really really beautiful insights. So. Thank you for the book. Thank you for everything that you're doing. And we'll continue to keep talking. Thank you very much. And I'd love to, to do a tour for Eagle Forum and, uh, and the uh, followers of Eagle Forum. So that would be great. Thank you. I think we absolutely need to make that happen. Uh, one of the things I, I wanted to tell you, our uh, President Emeritus, Uni Smith, whose husband is Albert Lee Smith, who was a congressman who served in the early 80s, was so thrilled to hear about what you're doing when she was a congressional wife she put together a slideshow about along the lines of what you're doing and was so inspired the way you were by the beauty of the way history is showcased in the Capitol. So you really share that love. So thank you so much, Congressman. Thank you. It's good to be with you. You too. Well, you take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engage with Eagle Forum. Please be sure to subscribe, share with your friends, and leave us a review. You can find us on all of the major social media outlets and at engagewitheagleforum.com. From your house to the state house to the White House, this is Engage with Eagle Forum.